Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Today, the ACTU Congress supports Western Sahara at the Congress last week. There was a resolution put forward to talk about it. It will be Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Associate Professor in the School of History and Philosophy at the University of New South Wales, Peter Slezak. And he's not welcome at the Jewish Festival of Ideas Peter is Jewish, but he's not welcome. We'll find out why a little later. Labor mobility, particularly relating to Pacific nations. We've been hearing a lot about labor mobility and the the dreadful conditions that some workers are subjected to. I'll be speaking with Nick McClellan, who's a journalist and researcher. And let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. And he's had another one of those weeks. And he's got Radiothon to come up next week. A week, Jan, listener, when... Oh, just a quick update. As at four o'clock, the US of the UN of the US of the world, and therefore True Blue Aussie, are not yet at war with China. That's reassuring. But a week when this Treasury official said the housing market was in a bubble, which mightn't be a bad thing, because for those who can't afford a roof over their heads, a, a bubble would at least provide more protection than the gutter, although Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, said he hoped the value of his little family home would keep increasing. That is not to say I am a great believer in making housing affordable. Uh, So you want the price of houses people can't afford to become more unaffordable so they can afford them? Certainly not. The people I talk to assure me they can afford housing. Lots and lots of housing, in fact. Addressing the affordable issue by making more homes available for rent. And they appreciate little government incentives like negative gearing and other tax benefits which can only help the affordability thingy. How much is your government providing for public housing which would help address the problem? Public housing is a most inefficient way to address the bubble unaffordable issue. The solution to housing affordability lies with the private sector, with the lean, mean hand of efficiency, and as I said, the people I talk to have no affordability problem, which proves my point. Speaking of, we celebrated our 200 filthy richest of the filthy rich, and some of the filthy richest agree to have a one-night sleep-out to show just how they empathise with the homeless. And they know massive publicity eulogising the filthiest rich may inspire those slothful homeless to lift themselves out of the gutter. Even if it inspires just one person, we feel we've made a contribution to their miserable lives lift themselves, strive to be on that list this time next year and looking at the list, one hint we can give the homeless is check whether your parents are filthy, filthy rich because it does seem to influence your ability to display your filthy rich talents. 
Although a bit of trouble at poor Gina's place. Okay, she's still the filthiest richest of the filthy richest, but she dropped six billion from last year. And to make matters worse, the sorry, the police were called to her mansion after a quiet Saturday night card game of happy families ended up in a riot, arms and legs in all directions, although the Federal Minister for High Intelligence, Barndor Joyce, blamed the kids, saying when Gina got a perfect hand, they tried to steal it off her. And behind all that publicity, the lazy avaricious workers' evil unions met for three days, passing all sorts of envy-inspired threats to the poor, filthy rich-like, suggesting workers have a right to industrial action to strike, when we all know strikes are illegal. In fact, I suspect being a worker is illegal, or at least being a worker in an evil union is illegal, but thankfully the community generally was saved from such dreadful news by the mainstream presenters of the good news, the news we need to be told. The ACTU Congress got barely a mention. In fact, four paragraphs at the bottom of P19 Thursday, the sole reference in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Back to Tiny's compassion for the homeless, that conscience, those Christian beliefs, his sense of solidarity also got the better of him over these Rohingya refugees bobbing about stateless in the Pacific. In solidarity, he's decided to make lots of other people stateless as well. The Christian compassionate way to stop these people dying at sea is to stop the boats. Don't let them land. Stop the boats. Stop the boats. Uh, But they'll die at sea. That will teach them not to die at sea. Incidentally, if that giant mind former train killer at Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Peter Duffer is at the top end of the government's cabinet material, we can but imagine what the others must be like. And as a correspondent in the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Fairfax commented through the week, these people would be happy to come in through the front door if only someone would show them where the front door is. The Science is Science is Not Science Award of the Week to the Minister for Science, Not Science, Ian McFarting, at a Troubluwazi Energy Future Conference sponsored by the Troubluwazi Capitalist Review and transnational energy giant GE for general exploitation. Before we go to Ian's prestigious award, the conference, driving, quote, a serious debate on the energy sector in True Blue Aussie's future, was truly representative of the community. Representatives from the big fossil players, the wonderful picky of eight men in suits, men in uniform, uniform of mind, and I thought, which one of them represented the environment? Which one of them represented the half of our society which just happens not to be men? Which one of them represented the workers in the industry? Anyway, Ian's award. The best way to get around activists trying to stop these great troubadours digging up all they want to dig up is, quote, basically tell, tell the story that is truthful. No politicking, in fact, all science. Uh, so you believe we must accept the scientific evidence, Ian? Well, they're the ones who know science is science. Uh, So you accept the overwhelming scientific evidence about anthropological climate change. 
look, the jury is still out. There, there is no guarantee those scientists know what they're talking about. G given their clear bias and lack of logic, there is strong non-scientific evidence that prestigious journal, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, for instance, that climate change is not climate change, and the climate change that is not climate change is not anthropo... Anthrop whatever you said. Ian, your science is science is not science of what is on the way. And suddenly it's all balanced as the forces of ignorance put pressure on the fossils. Origin Fossil Energy's big supremo Grant Kingpin sagely tells us what is the ideal energy mix. It's about a third to renewables, a third to gas and a third to other sources. Grant doesn't tell us what the other sources are, but Thursday's Troubadour Aussie Capitalist Review, another fossil, explained it's not a choice between renewables and coal. We have to rely on both for the next several hundred years or so. Renewables simply can't replace fossils. Which at least is optimistic, the several hundred years bit, with the fossils bushfiring us toward a fast-burning deep fry. In the week that was sport, as almost everyone but the 17-year big supremo of world soccer, as we call it, we play footy, real footy here, almost everyone except languished in a Swiss prison cell, the 17-year big supremo wet bladder said he needed four more years as big supremo to address the rampant corruption he oversaw but knew absolutely nothing about. You can't blame me for knowing nothing. I'm just the big supremo. Uh, then why should you get re-elected? Because I know everything. Silence is golden. Very golden. I had no idea the others were full of piss, Wet Bladder explained. And while we don't condone corruption here on the week that was, just interesting that the US of, in its role as the world court, assuming its right to drag anyone from anywhere in the world before its own courts, while of course banning any US of citizen from ever being charged by the real world court for little misdemeanours like war crimes, has charged all these people when the corruption thwarted a, a US of bid to hold the World Cup. Very internationally responsible, solidarity by the good old FBI, but just wonder why they didn't charge anyone when it was exposed that similar corruption awarded a Winter Olympics to Salt Lake City. Given the number four on, on the list of the filthiest rich Frank Lowy than Lowe used billions of our money to attract one vote through all that corruption, we can only assume he will do the right thing and repay the public purse. After all, the filthy, filthy super rich are always talking about the government wasting money. And drug cheat, as they call him, Alberto Contadope, won the Giro d'Italia riding a specially converted syringe on wheels, reinforcing our confidence in the once fine sport of cycling. The blood is thick as a brick award of the week to Christine Forster, who wants to marry her same-sex partner and is, of course, Tiny's sister, who attacked poor Socialist Party Supremo Bill Shorten's ambition for moving a same-sex marriage bill, pointing out her brother made it clear same-sex marriage should be owned by the whole parliament if this change happens, putting her faith in Tiny, 
Chris Dean, your blood is thick as a brick award is on the way. And finally, a first for the week that was, but so important it is you, we had no choice. The first time we've ended with Celebrity News. And this week, our poor little rich girls spare her a thought award as we head toward Radiothon also needing money. I fell upon an old quote from our Celebrity News staple, our dear little Paris, apart from her big feet. Next to the standard pouting picky with those come-hither eyes alluring us, everything bad that can happen to a person has happened to me. Yeah, like inheriting so much wealth, you never have to do a day's work in your life. Good afternoon. Poor Paris. But I suppose as long as she's got someone like Kevin Healy to look after her, she'll be okay. And we'll be okay too after the Radiothon next week when all our wonderful listeners have rung up through the week and pledged support to keep us on air. We only do it with people that we like and that you like us, so we are dependent on donations. So I do hope that this time next week the phones will be ringing hot and you'll be pledging your support to 3CR and in particular to Tuesday Home Time. The United States has recently declared Cuba should not be on its list of terrorist threats. As political change moves rapidly, why has the US abandoned more than half a century of hostility? What is behind its new moves for rapprochement? And what will the changes mean for Cubans and for the ongoing maintenance of the Cuban revolution, of Cuban socialism? These important issues will be addressed at a special public meeting by one of Cuba's most influential women and intellectuals, Parliamentarian and National Assembly of People's Party member Kenia Serrano Puch. Let's hear what's really happening from the inside. Monday, June 8th, 7pm at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. Brought to us by the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society. Oh, and we reckon Cuba should keep the US on its terrorist list. The Australia-Cuba Friendship Society is a 3CR supporter. Today we're going to learn about H3O. Uh, Professor, if I'm not mistaken, H3O is the chemical compound hydronium. That's correct, Nelson, but it's also an exciting new formula. H3O is simply the addition of water and the subtraction of sugary drinks multiplied by 30 days. Ah, I see. And the results? You can kickstart weight loss, reduce health risks, reduce tooth decay, and save money. Take VicHealth's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Richard Moss and Tim Potter. At the ACTU Congress last week, a great number of resolutions were passed. The one we're discussing today relates to Western Sahara. And on the phone is Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. Kate, it's quite a a detailed resolution. Can you explain what it entails? Like a lot of these resolutions, it goes through the past history for the benefit of people who are new to the subject, so it explains that Morocco has occupied Western Sahara since 1975, that the UN has been trying to hold a referendum so that it could decolonise, that's the standard process of decolonisation for the UN, but this hasn't been successful. It doesn't say this, but Morocco has been blocking that referendum. It points out that there are about half the population of Saharawis live in refugee camps in southwest Algeria. Those that remain in the 
part of Western Sahara that's occupied by Morocco suffer human rights abuses. It's very important now after so many years, 40 years, that a lasting solution to the conflict should be found. And what's the background to this resolution? It doesn't just happen on the day. It doesn't just happen on the day. Sahrawi representative from Western Sahara, Kamal Fadel, has been talking with the trade unions for many years. And there are some unions that are very well acquainted with the situation and have supported the work of also the Australia Western Sahara Association. The International Secretary of the ACTU has also been very supportive in the past and and still now. It's not new to some of the people, but clearly it would always be new to some new delegates who might not have been aware of it. And uh, not everybody is interested in international issues. But we're very grateful for those who are, because the, the work, the trade union movement generally supports uh, people's rights, the right to self-determination and the freedom from human rights abuses, that they should have basic rights of freedom of association, freedom of expression and, and all of that. It's not very difficult to convince people who support the unions that they should also be supporting Western Sahara because it's a very just cause. And this is not the first time a similar resolution has been put forward to an ACTU Congress? No, it, it, it's been before and uh, and something a bit similar. But I think that the new things this year might be that we've asked the UN not just to find a solution quickly, not just to expand the mandate of its mission to include human rights monitoring, but also to protect the natural resources of Western Sahara because Australia is one of the importers of those natural resources. We import phosphate from Western Sahara. We feel that the Moroccan government should not be selling the resources that rightly belong to the Sahrawi people. It calls upon uh, the UN to set up a council for natural resources that would hold any revenue from the resources in trust for the people until independence or until the the government of their country is determined. You mentioned that this is not the first one. What weight does it carry? And where does it carry any weight? I suppose it's really up to us and those supporters of the issue to now point out, it says it urges the UN to do this, it urges the Australian government to support the right to self-determination, which it does, to call on the companies to end importation, which it doesn't. It just says that the companies should seek their own legal advice. It calls upon the Australian government to pressure Morocco to end human rights abuses, which I don't think they do adequately, if they do at all. Also, we call on the Australian government to recognise the Sahrawi Republic, which was recognised by the African Union and over 80 countries. We think this part is very important. I think that's a new clause added from previous resolutions. And... It has actually been suggested by 
a person who was a legal counsel to the UN, that this might be a way forward to unblock the process, which the peace process, which isn't working. As I said, the, the referendum has been more or less indefinitely postponed at the moment. But if the UN were to recognise Western Sahara because a, uh, the Sahara Repub Republic has been declared by and is operating as a you know, fully-fledged government, it's got parliament, it's got ministers, it's got you know, ministries, you know, they, they administer the, the refugee camps and they have represented diplomatic representatives in many countries, I can't remember how many, but, you know, certainly sort of 40 or 50 countries around the world. So they are operating as a, a country, but they need recognition. And once that happens, they would be able to have a seat in the United Nations, we hope, and then Morocco wouldn't like it, but there would still have to be negotiations with Morocco, probably. But it would be a way forward to just break that deadlock, which is stymieing the whole peace process at the moment. And one of those countries that are not cooperating with Western Sahara, I'd imagine, is the United States. And if you'd like to talk about Dr. Stephen Zunes, who was one of your guest speakers at your recent conference, he's been keeping an eye on Hillary Clinton. He has. She's come into the news lately. The United States has got a very kind of ambivalent position officially. They don't want to be seen to be supporting either side. But Morocco has very successful lobbyists in Washington, and they remind the Americans that Morocco is one of the first countries to recognize American independence way back when. So they have been very close allies, they say, over all of those centuries. And so they make it very difficult for the United States to have a pro-Western Sahara stance. Nevertheless, you know, because they believe in, or their rhetoric at least, believes in democracy and all of the things that should be favouring the UN position, they do stand for uh, the UN peace process and so on. But uh, different politicians have different positions, and it turns out that the Clinton family have been very close to the Moroccan royal family for a long period of time. Uh, it turns out that the, uh, the OCP, which is the Moroccan phosphate company, has donated a million dollars to the Clinton Foundation to run a the global the Clinton Global Initiative, which was being inaugurated in Africa, its first meeting in Africa, in Morocco, in early May. Then one of the congressmen raised the issue that should they be receiving money from uh, a company that is engaged in this kind of trade, Congressman Joe Pitts said, you've heard of blood diamonds, but in many ways you could say that the OCP is shipping blood phosphate. Western Sahara was taken over by Morocco to exploit its resources, and this is one of the principal companies involved in that effort.
So he was putting forward very strongly that this shouldn't happen. Now, it turns out that for reasons that haven't been explained to my knowledge, Hillary Clinton didn't attend the launch of the initiative in Marrakesh. Only Bill and their daughter, Chelsea, uh, attended. So it's quite interesting uh, that perhaps that had some effect. Uh, otherwise, it might have been a fairly open stance in favour of Morocco. And it's not only the fact that they're, they're stealing the phosphate from Western Sahara, but the way they've treated the workers who oh, they employ. Yes. Exactly. And the Politico reporter then travelled to Western Sahara and Morocco and managed to interview some of those workers who have been uh, sacked, who've been deprived of their retirement pension, who's not ever had proper compensation for injuries at work and you know many other grievances. If they try to stand up for their rights, other kinds of insidious things happen, like I met a man there whose wife had a property which was seized by the Moroccan authorities, and they seem to have no redress. She just lost this property. They just seized something that was belonging to her. And, and maybe it was actually said that they certainly they knew that this was the authorities' way of trying to say if you're quiet and if you don't keep demonstrating in the streets about you know, your, your issues, wanting your rights, etc., uh, you know, this mightn't have happened. So, yes, it is uh, uh, all sorts of things happen to these people. The Moroccans don't want them to be announcing the difficulties that they face. Well, you might be able to understand why Hillary Clinton might know about the workers, their treatment, but... She, over the years, couldn't have ignored all the reports that are coming out from groups like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the Kennedy Centre, about the situation in Western Sahara and the repression for the people. That's true. That's right. And so that's another new thing This uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks that Amnesty International has published a report entitled shadow of impunity, torture in Morocco and Western Sahara. They go in some detail in they're treating both countries together, so we have to tease out the bits that are about Western Sahara because those are the bits that interest us. But they um, explain that the, um, the country that, uh, you know, Morocco has for a long time supported the abolition of torture. They've said that they, they've signed various agreements, they've initiated various legislation to say that they don't uh, support it, that they will prosecute people who are convicted of torture, that they will investigate any claims of torture, and yet none of this is happening and they are getting away with it. That's the shadow of impunity. Amnesty have their good reputation because they never take anyone else's word for claims like something like torture. They go and they meet the victims or the close relatives of the victims and they 
find out on the ground exactly what happened. So they travelled to Morocco in Western Sahara and they documented 173 cases of alleged torture and other ill-treatment and of men, women and children by police and security forces for four years over from 2010 to 2014. Now, they wanted to keep it up to date because uh, this report's not was published on May the 19th, 2015. They would have liked to have brought it more up to date. But in October of 2014, their mission was refused entry. Now, I suppose the authorities knew that they were coming to do this work, but then they've always let them in before. But they haven't been able to... They've made several attempts since then, but they haven't been able to get back to confirm further reports that they've had. All the same, what, what they've got, the evidence they've got in this report, is surely enough to call on Morocco to explain what's happened and to uh, investigate the allegations that are being made. Has Morocco acknowledged this report? Not to my knowledge, I don't know. They don't usually, they usually go quiet. When there's, when there's evidence that they can't easily refute, they do tend to just go quiet <laughs> and so, hope that everyone forgets about it and that it all blows over. Kafir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. And you were listening to Kate Lewis, who's from the Australian Western Sahara Association, talking about um, a resolution from the ACTU Congress here in Melbourne last week. You are listening to 3CR, where the time is 430 one hour to go, and in a few moments we'll be hearing about a Jewish festival ideas and one Jewish person who is not welcome. The United States has recently declared Cuba should not be on its list of terrorist threats. As political change moves rapidly, why has the US abandoned more than half a century of hostility? What is behind its new moves for rapprochement? And what will the changes mean for Cubans and for the ongoing maintenance of the Cuban revolution, of Cuban socialism? These important issues will be addressed at a special public meeting by one of Cuba's most influential women and intellectuals, Parliamentarian and National Assembly of People's Party member Kenia Serrano Puch. Let's hear what's really happening from the inside. Monday, June 8th, 7pm at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. Brought to us by the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society. Oh, and we reckon Cuba should keep the US on its terrorist list. The Australia-Cuba Friendship Society is a 3CR supporter. 
The annual Festival of Jewish Ideas will be held in Sydney over the long weekend of the 6th to the 8th of June, but it apparently is not open to all Jewish ideas. I'm speaking with Dr Peter Slezak, lecturer in philosophy at the University of New South Wales, who is one of those off the invite list. Peter, can you first talk about this festival of Jewish ideas, how long it's been going? There are others around the world under the, the general heading of Limud, which is Hebrew for learning. I understand there are lots around the world, and the Australian branch is called Limud Oz, and it's run alternately between Melbourne and Sydney. The one in Sydney is sponsored by the Shalom Institute at the University of New South Wales. They're a Sydney branch of an international movement. And what are the aims of the festival? Well, on their website, it's rather interesting. They talk about having a festival and a conference, as it was, for a range of Jewish ideas and cultural events and political events. And it professes to be open to all views and to be a forum for free discussion of all points of view among Jews, of course, it's actually not that at all, and there are some things that they really try very hard to prevent from being heard. Have you attended in the past? I have indeed. In fact, uh, after I'd become a bit involved with other Jews setting up, uh, as it was then, the independent Australian Jewish voices who were giving a, a forum for a dissident opinion among Jews, uh, we got a very, very many signatures and we became quite well known publicly for representing a minority of Jewish opinion that really was disagreeing with the mainstream pro-Israel position. Well, uh, I had uh, decided that it'd be good to speak in a Jewish uh, audience, in a Jewish forum, and I had spoken, I think, in 2009 on the first occasion on Jewish identity and responsibility, and I got a, a reasonable audience, and it went over very well, and subsequently I was banned with others, both in a Melbourne occasion. And a couple of years ago, they allowed my talk to go onto the program. This was in 2013. I was talking uh, about matters that were obliquely, indirectly connected to the current problems in Israel and Palestine. But I spoke about dissent, and particularly the Jewish philosopher Baruch de Spinoza in the 17th century, and other dissidents, uh, Galileo and Socrates, to discuss the issue of dissent and how it's uh, handled. And on that occasion, it was rather interesting because the young uh, organisers allowed me to be on the program under the proviso that I wouldn't speak about the boycott, the BDS movement, and, and about Israel, the occupation and so on. And I agreed to do that, but it caused an immense stir because the leaders of the Jewish community tried to have me taken off the program. And it got a lot of publicity, a lot of outrage, not least of all among the Jewish people who thought that whatever my views are, uh, I ought not to be removed from being able to, to be heard. So this year, I put up a, a talk again, this time speaking about the German philosopher Hannah Arendt, who had covered the Eichmann trial. She was very controversial in her day. And so that's another interesting example of uh, uh, the Jewish community becoming very critical of people who dissent from the orthodoxy, from the received view, uh, the preferred pro-Israel view. My talk this year was about that. Well, this year I got a, a, a message telling me that my proposed talk is not accepted, but not on the grounds of anything that the talk was about, but simply on the grounds that I am a supporter publicly of the boycott movement. Whereas last time they actually explicitly had a policy, they decided not to play the, the man but to play the ball. This year they decided to play the, the man, and it was explicit that it's because I'm a supporter of the boycott movement I shouldn't be allowed to appear on the program. Extraordinary. And how many others who wanted to appear aren't appearing? Well, look, that's a good question. I'm not aware of any others. In the past, there had been uh, others, uh, Jewish voices, that uh, crossed what they call the red lines, and it's mainly the boycott that is regarded as a red line. Uh, they have these appalling condemnations of people who boycott. They compare them to the Nazi German boycotting of Jewish shops. These are explicit comparisons that are made regularly about anybody who supports or promotes the boycott against Israel, which is a scandalous 
scurrilous and uh, awful slur against people who are really standing for human rights and uh, international law. Do you protest about that or you just let it slide? Oh, I don't let it fly at all, on the contrary. Look, my background is that I have parents who are both survivors of the Holocaust. My mother, uh, she's 90 years old and she was a survivor with her mother in Auschwitz. My dad survived other camps elsewhere and I grew up with their stories as, as Jews of my generation did and I've deeply internalised the horrors of, of that and in particular the horrors of anti-Semitism and the uh, racism which, which led to this uh, genocide. So it's not as though I have any illusions about anti-Semitism or, or that I'm insensitive to this. On the contrary, I think it's a disgrace that it's used to shut down criticism of Israel. The Jewish communities who do this and the Israelis they know that there's a large reservoir of sympathy, justifiably, for the Jews who suffered historically you know, unprecedented uh, tragedy uh, on the basis of this kind of racism. And they use this to silence critics of Israel who are rightly and reasonably sensitive to being accused of being anti-Semitic. And this is an appalling business. And, and it's especially because, on the one hand, Israel proclaims itself as being a Jewish state acting on behalf of all Jews. And the Jewish communities enforce strictly a loyalty to Israel. People like me are treated as pariahs. And then they complain when people criticize the state of Israel and its crimes. They're criticizing Jews. Well, that really is intolerable, and, and I'm happy to be speaking out very forcefully against that. Whose idea was it to have a, a festival, a fringe festival, I suppose? Oh, mine, I guess, although we had one similar, I have to say, the, the credit goes to people. When in Melbourne, we were once um, banned, a few of us, um, a woman up at Gala Barbanel had edited a book called Beyond Tribal Loyalties. And I was proud to be among some very good people in that as one of the authors of sort of personal stories of how we got to where we are. That was banned, and one of the colleagues at the University there in Melbourne did a fringe meeting like that in the same venue uh, or nearby. And so that was the occasion that I had in mind when I decided to put on kind of competing uh, or alternative fringe or, or parallel uh, meeting. Not so easy, though, was it? It was easy enough. It was the responses that were rather interesting. I received a phone call. I mean, we'd originally called it... Um, uh, Limwood Fringe, and we actually even thought of calling it by the term Salon de Refusé, which is the allusion to the French uh, galleries that put on a works of art that were rejected from the main exhibition. That seemed a bit too pretentious and nobody would understand it perhaps. But that indicates that we understood and, and made it clear that we were not part of the Limwood and had no association with them, but we were a protest uh, occasion. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I got a lawyer's letter with very threatening remarks saying that um, we're infringing their trademark and their rights and, and so on, and that I should cease and desist using the term Limud and so on. So they've uh, pulled out the big guns and made all sorts of threats of uh, punitive damages and I don't know what. So, so yes, uh, they, they got uh, pretty nasty about it. And what's your answer to that? I'm not a lawyer, but I sought some advice uh, from the university in, in particular. I think it's doubtful whether I, I have infringed any uh, trademark, uh, but I had no intention of doing anything that violates or, or infringes their rights. Certainly that wasn't the intention, as they claim in this lawyer's letter, that it was a deliberate, uh, deceptive action. It wasn't that at all. It was on the contrary. Our fringe had got so much publicity as a, as a fringe and, and a kind of a protest thing, it was hardly deceptive of me to promote it as, as an alternative. But I have no problem in dropping the term. And in fact, what we've done is uh, complying entirely with their demands. And we've now renamed a Jewish fringe and uh, made it clear that we have no association and we're not sponsored and uh, we have no connection with the official Limudons. The Limud goes for three days. How long does yours go? Just a couple of hours. <laughs> it's only on, on the Monday, the 8th, the, uh, next week, the Queen's birthday holiday long weekend. And we just decided to put on not just my own session, a version of it that was banned, but um, another one by a Jewish woman who's also a pariah and regarded as persona non grata for her activism on behalf of Palestine. And another wonderful session with uh, 
three students from the university, two Palestinians who are studying in the law school here, they're both from, from Palestine, from the West Bank, and a young Israeli woman who had served in the army and so on. So that's a little panel talking about their identity, what it's like under the occupation from both sides of the Green Line, as it were. Talk a bit more about what Vivian was, is going to say. Well, now, she has a panel on BDS explicitly addressing the question of the boycott movement, and I think her plan is to have more of a, a panel uh, or, a, or a symposium to discuss with the audience rather than to give a formal presentation. And uh, I think that's an extremely good idea because this is exactly the issue that's regarded as, as a, a red line. And uh, it's very hard, of course, to engage and to talk about it, especially if, if the Limudos people refuse to take people who have a, an alternative dissident view about it. So I think that's a very important session where people can... Uh, well, look, we hope, and, and as you see, we've tried to reach into the Jewish community to have a civilised debate about uh, what are difficult uh, matters, and uh, there's not enough of that. Do you know who's going to be coming? No, we have no idea. But, of course, to the great annoyance, I'm sure, of the organisers of Limwood, we made it clear that we're nearby, and uh, we hope that some of the uh, people attending Limwood might come across as they were prevented from doing because we were banned. And we hope, I mean, we clearly would like to address a Jewish audience, so we want them to hear. Now, of course, the point is that many do want to hear. Many came to our fringe session in Melbourne. When I've gone to the Limwood, uh, both last time and before when I've been banned, many people come up to me, they don't agree with me, but they want to talk. And I'm keen to have that conversation. And I think very many in the Jewish community do want to have it, and I think it's appalling that the leadership prevent us addressing and, and having a dialogue on these issues. It's rather ironic because one of the leaders in the community was published in the press saying that the Jewish community ought not to be forced to hear people like me. Well, it was hardly going to be a compulsory you know, session for them to, to listen, but we want to make it available, and it's terrible that leadership decide for others. It's a patronising, paternalistic attitude that they will decide for others who they should hear. And all we want is to, to have the opportunity. And, of course, it's very hard to have access to the Jewish audience. When we bring out very distinguished and interesting people, both from Israel and from America, Jews from Israel, for example, who have a, a dissident and alternative view from the, the, the mainstream one, the Jewish community doesn't come along. They don't attend uh, people who've got the best credentials as Israeli citizens and, and Jews. And So we're struggling to try to engage in a respectful and... Uh, decent way about what are undeniably difficult questions. In one sense they're trying to stifle debate on BDS here. What's the situation like in Israel regarding debate on well, BDS? look, that's a very good question. They've made it illegal in some respects. They've got, I think, legislation has been passed to penalise people who promote or support BDS and it's possible to take out all sorts of legal action for compensation and so on. So the Israeli, in fact, just the other day, Reuven Rivlin, who's the president, declared that the BDS is the greatest strategic threat to the state of Israel. Of course, for all the pretense here of critics that it's really not significant and nobody supports it, it's very clear they've got now a minister that has just been appointed. One of his responsibilities is to try to combat the BDS around the world. So they're sure as hell taking it very seriously over there. And of course, I mean, they understand that the threat is, is not to the state of Israel because it's not even going to be a financial problem for them given their wealth and their support. It's clearly a problem for their reputation around the world. That's what they're clearly worried about. And how do you promote BDS here in Australia, Peter? Well, look, I'm not sure I promote it exactly. I, um, support. I, 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 support. I talk about it. Well, I support it. I, I was ambivalent about it. I'm sensitive to all sorts of criticisms and difficulties as a tactic. There are all sorts of critics who have important uh, things to say. For example, the people who attack us deliberately conflate the support for BDS with the support for a one-state solution. That's not true. 
certainly some of the people who are at the forefront of the BDS movement personally hold a, a one-state position on this. I don't, as it happens. I'm involved with activists, and in various ways I, I've decided to support uh, the BDS in various forms. There are a number of different ways one could be a supporter of BDS. But I've spoken, for example, on a committee on, on which I'm the executive, uh, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, who haven't formally adopted the BDS, but many groups around the country do, and they demonstrate in, for example, in Adelaide, there's a very active group that demonstrates every week in the Rundle Mall against um, certain uh, shops that are uh, exploiting the, the occupation in the West Bank. Not particularly active in some sense, but certainly I speak in support of it, and particularly I, I stand to repudiate these appalling charges that anybody who supports BDS it has to be compared with the Nazis. I mean, that's just an unconscionable, scurrilous and really terrible defamation of decent people. And I'm in a good position to repudiate that, and so I think it's worth speaking out about it. And another way that you're repudiating it is by talking about a new book yes. on boycott. Yes, well, I've just uh, had an exchange with the authors uh, about this. Um, there's a book called Boycotting Israel is Wrong by Philip Mendes and Nick Dyrenfurth, and I have to say it's a, an appalling, I might say even dishonest book, it uh, runs the line that um, they, you refer to the BDS movement is uh, inherently at its core anti-Semitic. They use phrases like that, and they have these apocalyptic descriptions of the BDS movement as, as, as uh, designing the destruction of Israel or the Jewish state. Now, what they mean is, of course, that it may cease to be a Jewish state if the Palestinians are given equal rights, which is what they're demanding under the boycott movement. One of the principles of the boycott movement is to demand that since... Uh, uh, Israel is both discriminating against the Palestinians in Israel. 20% of the citizens are Palestinian. They don't have equal rights. There are 50 or so laws that discriminate against them just inside Israel. But, of course, the West Bank is a whole other story. And there there's this extremely brutal, repressive occupation. What's happened is, of course, that uh, given that Israel has now effectively annexed the whole of the West Bank and have said so explicitly, Netanyahu and, and leaders way back have all said that that's their plan, now they're pleading for equal rights in what has effectively become a single state. Now, that's regarded as destroying Israel. Well, I said to, to the authors uh, that this is a terribly racist response to people who are simply demanding now equal rights in what was their own homeland that's been uh, effectively taken away from them. In fact, one of the Palestinian members of the Knesset, Hanin Zawabi, she said, look, she's not a, an immigrant into this country. This is her traditional homeland, and she doesn't have equal rights in, in her own homeland. So... That's one of the demands, and the idea that this is destroying or making uh, Israel disappear is a terribly inappropriate way to describe what is really a demand for equal rights. How do they answer your arguments? Well, I don't think they do. Um, there is no answer because... Um, In the discussion today? Well, they just keep t t repeating the, these phrases that, that they want to turn the tables around, and I think it's a kind of a gall on their part to make out as though there's this hostility on the part of the supporters of the BDS movement, as if they are destroying, they use words like they're destroying the state of Israel. They just keep repeating this. When, when you try to tease it out, of course, what it is doing is uh, inevitably uh, giving equal rights to all the citizens of Israel, and therefore it ceases to become, in some sense, a Jewish state, which is what they want to insist on. But many people have pointed out that you can't have a Jewish state and a democratic state because the two are incompatible. The Palestinian citizens, who are after all the original inhabitants of, of the region until 1947 when it was partitioned, they deserve to be equal uh, citizens in, in a state, which ought to be a state of its citizens. Actually, Israel is formally not a state of its citizens. It's a state of the Jewish people. There are important legal and, and, and other ways in which they're heavily discriminated against, apart from all sorts of other practical discriminations. To talk about destroying the Jewish state is a kind of a rhetorical Orwellism. It's reversing the realities. And after all, Israel is, is this powerful uh, state 
who has the monopoly of, of violence in the region. I'm not even talking about Gaza, but of course Gaza is in international understanding an integral part of Palestine, although it's geographically separated, which is a whole other story about the, the violence there. So the idea that you reverse this as though Israel is the victim, and that's how they speak all the time. Their answer is to keep, uh, as this book uh, does, is constantly presenting Israel as the victim of these terrible people who basically are the ones that have been, you know, dispossessed. The other thing that's relevant about the book, you can argue about BDS and the psychology of its supporters and whether they're self-hating Jews or whether they're anti-Semites, but they don't want to talk about what the cause of their concern is. This book doesn't give you a map of the West Bank which shows you the reality. It doesn't list, for example, all the various ways in which the Palestinians on the West Bank are being tormented and abused in the most appalling ways. I mean, for example, they talk about the wall. The wall, which was claimed to be a, a, a security barrier, well, it isn't for all sorts of reasons. In fact, I can say categorically that nothing on the West Bank is for the security of the state of Israel. For one thing, they've moved now half a million Jewish Israelis into the West Bank. The wall takes about 9 or 10% of the West Bank. If they wanted a defense wall, why don't they just build it on their property on the, on the Green Line? Nobody would object to that. It takes 10% of the West Bank, and of course it goes around the big settlements. So that's uh, basically a theft of the land. The water aquifers are being taken by Israel and by the settlements. Some 70% of the water is taken from Palestinian aquifers into Israel. 10% goes to the settlements, and the Palestinians don't get the United Nations uh, required uh, minimum uh, water. What's that? Is that the security of the state of Israel? There are checkpoints all over the place. And I have to say that since the year 2000, something like 8,000 Palestinians have been shot dead, unarmed demonstrators, including about 1,400 kids. These are unarmed kids in their own villages who are demonstrating like in Nilin, in Bilin and Nabi Saleh where they demonstrate and you know, make a fuss and then the military comes and, and shoots them dead. Uh, there were a couple of occasions recently that were shown, uh, caught on security cameras where two kids walking with their knapsacks away from anything uh, nearby, snipers from hundreds of metres away shot them dead. The regular uh, atrocities that are happening on the West Bank, which are not being discussed, this book doesn't mention any of this, and, and pretends that somehow Israel is, is in danger of being destroyed when they've destroyed Palestine. It's, it's an appalling uh, attempt to reverse uh, you know, who's the victim and who's the perpetrator. And of course all Jews aren't equal either because you have the instance of the, the Ethiopian Jews who are doing it pretty tough. Look, that's a whole other story. That's right. Within Israel, there's an enormous amount of racism. Uh, it's very public, although it's not in the mainstream, but you can see it in various news outlets and, and journalists on YouTube and elsewhere. And racist not only against the Arab uh, citizens of Israel, but the Ethiopian Jews and, of course, other uh, refugees who've come into Israel. It's pretty uh, ugly. And it's at the highest levels. It has to be said that although they, again, uh, criticise the, the critics of Israel and talk as though every Palestinian wants to destroy uh, Israel, uh, the reality is that not just uh, the ordinary citizens of Israel, but half a dozen of the members of the Knesset utter these blood-curdling, racist, even genocidal remarks. One of them, a young woman, Ayelet Shaked, said that they have to kill all the Palestinians because they give birth to little snakes. Well, I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric coming out of the leadership of the uh, Israeli government. It's not played up much on the West, but people like, like the authors of this book don't talk about what is, is this widespread racist attitude inside the, the, the Israeli government itself. And by the way, one of the things that's worth saying, they present themselves as they're the progressive voice. So let's get back to the negotiating table. Of course, the negotiating and the so-called peace process has been an annexation process. It's stolen. I mean, you don't have to know too much to see that that's what the peace process has been. The interesting fact about this is that the leadership of Israel are actually much more honest. 
from way back, not only Netanyahu, who recently came out and said, well, the Palestinians are not going to get a state, and another uh, young woman minister just came out and said that the Israelis and Jews, in fact, can settle anywhere that they want in the whole of historic Palestine. But if you go back to uh, Herzl and the first uh, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and uh, Begin and uh, Sharon, they've all said, we're going to expropriate and and annex the whole of what they call Eretz Israel, the whole of uh, traditional Judea and Samaria. Slowly but surely, we'll, we'll take the whole thing. Now, they're more honest, at least. They're upfront about it. So these lefty, so-called progressives, they don't mention any of this, as if there's never been this intention to take the whole of, of, of Palestine for the Jews. So this is a kind of um, pretense of being progressive, and, and they're so progressive they don't mention any of the, the horrors uh, and the suffering, the really appalling suffering and humiliation daily at the checkpoints. You know, women die giving birth at checkpoints trying to get from one part of the West Bank to the other. This is not a threat to Israel. This is the, the reality, as I say, the facts on the ground, which are really awful beyond description. Peter, could I ask you finally about your parents, about how they feel? The State of Israel was ostensibly created for people like them. How has it affected them over the years? Well, my dad died some years ago, but he was a survivor from the Holocaust. My mother is alive. She's 90, bless her. She's um, a survivor of Auschwitz with her mother. Miraculously, in extraordinary ways, they survived. They, over the years, saw and understood what I was doing and were sympathetic to it. My mother's closest family are in Israel. They don't necessarily agree with my view on all this, but you're right, the Holocaust is used and and was, in fact, a kind of pretext for creating the State of Israel. The Palestinians weren't to blame for the Holocaust, but they paid a very big price for it. The the, the big powers through the United Nations gave away 55% of Palestine to a minority, the Jews who at the time only owned 3% of the land. They were 30% of the population. This is a terrible crime against the Palestinians, and they didn't deserve to have to pay the price for the Holocaust. To this day, the Holocaust is used as an excuse for what Israel is doing. And I think this is an appalling, uh, really a sacrilege, to dishonour the memory of the victims of the Holocaust. And particularly because there are lessons to learn from the Holocaust. And it isn't that, uh, you know, you, you discriminate against the Palestinians. The Holocaust ought to have taught us that we have to stand up for the victims. So I think that um, my parents' experience is relevant. I have to say one thing, too. Whenever I mention my parents' um, Holocaust background... They just describe me as being disgraceful and shameless in mentioning it. That, this is appalling. I mention it because I think there are some important, appropriate lessons to learn from it. They don't have a monopoly on the lessons to learn from it. And on the contrary, they use the Holocaust shamelessly to justify what they're doing in Israel. Well, I think that that's what's uh, disgraceful and not my attempt to draw the universal moral and human lessons from experience of the Jews, which I think is, is the right lesson to have learned. Have you found in the last years that more Jews are supporting views like yours as they see the the real situation in Israel and getting worse all the time? Look, there are. I mean, it's clear that we're a minority, the the descending Jews, but there are very many significant Jews who are... In fact, even in America, things are shifting because the Jews in America, almost all, some 70% or so or more, are Democrat voting progressives. And they're having trouble reconciling what they're now learning with their progressive values. So there's this split happening. Even the most, you might call, right-wing Zionists, like uh, Peter Beinart, who's an academic and commentator and a Zionist, an Orthodox Jew, he's supporting a limited boycott of, of settlement products. So the Jewish community is struggling with this over there because in America. The people who are on my side are still a minority, of course, but it is shifting. And there are very significant voices. For example, the world's leading, foremost expert on Gaza is a woman... Professor Sarah Roy at Harvard University. She's also the daughter of Holocaust survivors, and she's the world's expert on Gaza, and she talks about it and and supports the kind of views that I'm expressing. For for example, a journalist who was just visiting Australia from Israel, 
the uh, Haaretz, a journalist, Amira Haas. Her mother was a Holocaust survivor from the Bergen-Belsen camps. She's also drawing from her mother's experience, the Holocaust experience, to support and stand for the Palestinians against what Israel is doing. So there are very many. There's another Norman Finkelstein, who's one of the most vocal and, and expert historians and defenders of, of the Palestinian rights. He's also the son of Holocaust survivors. So look, there are a few. I mean, we're not a majority, but that's always the way with dissident protest movements to try to, to keep the moral and political issues in the public eye. It was the same with the Vietnam War and with the, the protests against Indonesia in, in East Timor. Always the dissidents are a minority and, and, and a kind of beleaguered I mean, not minority, but, but um, I always say that um, the strength of our, our position comes from the fact that we, we're concerned to tell the truth and we support international law and human rights. That ought to be easy. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you very much indeed, Jen. And that's Associate Professor Peter Selz-Shazak from the Philosophy Department at the University of New South Wales and a supporter of BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanction. And it's coming up to five o'clock. In a few moments, we'll be hearing from Nick McClellan and labour mobility around the Pacific and particularly in Australia and New Zealand. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR. Still supporting musicians and writers, and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR. Spreading the seeds of dissent. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, author and researcher Nick McClellan. And a very topical topic today, Nick, labour mobility. One of the things we see with both labour and liberal this protection of the borders is a central element of their current policies. And yet it comes at a time of significant labour mobility. There's a lot of focus, obviously, on asylum seekers and people seeking uh, protection from uh, human rights abuses. But we live in a world of significant labour mobility. Uh, Within Australia, for example, there are nearly a million people on temporary work visas of various sorts. You have students who can work 20 hours a week and extended at times over the uh, summer breaks. You have nearly 160,000 people on what are called working holidaymaker visas. There are two types of working holidaymaker visas, subsection 417 of the Immigration Act, which cover uh, many countries from Europe, increasingly now Southeast Asia and East Asia, 
also another type of uh, work and holiday visa for people from America and parts of Latin America. There's also uh, a very small seasonal worker program, which was first created by Kevin Rudd and uh, has continued since that time, geared to provide opportunities for Pacific Island workers to come and work, particularly in fruit picking, working in orchards and packing sheds uh, in the horticulture industry, but also some trials in other sectors, cotton, cane farming, even accommodation services. So with a million people, give or take some, the 457 visas uh, for skilled workers are not the only visas, and there's a lot of debate about people being ripped off and rorted under 457 visas, but there's all sorts of other people working on temporary visas. That raises real questions. Obviously, as temporary workers, these people don't have citizenship rights, so they often don't uh, have a say in uh, questions of governance in Australia. But more importantly, they're open to uh, abuse with underpayment of wages, poor conditions, uh, breaches of their agreements to come and work in the country, sometimes people facing significant sexual harassment or... uh, um, you know, having the hard word put on them by uh, their boss or their co-workers in order to keep their visa. There's a whole lot of issues around labour rights, around workplace rights um, that come with this uh, significant growth. And that's a major change in migration compared to 20, 30 years ago where people migrated to Australia and moved through permanent residency to become Australian citizens. Here you've got a substantial number of people staffing key sectors of the economy who don't have citizenship rights and uh, who are here basically for the good wages that you can get in Australia compared to uh, neighbouring developing countries in Asia and certainly in the Pacific. What about the seasonal workers, Nick? Are they treated differently? One of the features of the seasonal worker program is that it was pretty tightly regulated, has been up until now. One of the key arguments about a scheme like this is that it was designed to undercut the use of illegal and undocumented workers in uh, horticulture, particularly in fruit picking. And New Zealand has a similar scheme called the Recognised Seasonal Employer Scheme, RSE, which was created by uh, the Helen Clark government uh, nearly a decade ago. It was interesting because in 2005, New Zealand uh, government, together with the unions and employers in the horticultural sector, developed an industry plan and they mapped out how could New Zealand grow its horticultural industry, expand its horticultural industry, particularly with exports to Asia and new markets with the growth of... uh, uh, middle-class uh, populations who want to eat mangoes and, and so on, kiwi fruit and, and things in Asia. There was a significant industry agreement around an industry plan, and part of that was to crack down on illegal and undocumented workers, people being paid cash in hand, people working uh, under rotten conditions, often through labour hire brokers who creamed off a proportion of the wages for their own salaries. And New Zealand was small enough, country, it had... Uh, Uh, The horticulture sector concentrated in a few areas and it had uh, a national industry body, employer body, and they agreed that if they could get a guaranteed labour force at peak harvest time, um, so just for a temporary period, not people employed right through the year, but a a small number of workers full-time and then a peak harvest period where there's massive recruitment needed, then the the industry agreed that they would clean up tax rorts, uh, cash in hand and so on. And although that's not perfect, it's to a certain extent happened in New Zealand. And where are the workers coming from? Therefore, the workers are coming from most Forum Island countries. It's also open to some Southeast Asian countries, but particularly focused on the Pacific. And it's an opportunity for so-called unskilled workers to come and work in New Zealand because wages are much better in Australia and New Zealand than they are in Pacific Island countries for people whose only skill is farming and fishing. With all the 
uh, New Zealand vineyards. They just need a really concentrated labour force to pick the grapes when they come to, to ripening at harvest time. Uh, there's a period of pruning, and then really they don't need labour for the rest of the year. And so um, this is an ideal solution, that there's a guaranteed labour force who'll be paid properly, paid award wages, given proper conditions, health and safety, and so on. And the scheme was devised, both the Australian and New Zealand scheme, where some of the costs, for example, for transport, health, insurance, checks, and so on, are covered equally by the employer and the worker. It's slightly different, don't want to get too technical, but, you know. And for Pacific workers, it's a great opportunity. Wages in Australia, you know, uh, are much higher, three, four times higher than you can earn in the Pacific. So this um, labour mobility that we see all around the world is about remittances, people coming to earn money in high-wage countries, sending it back to their family to improve housing, to buy solar panels, to set up a small business, to pay school fees, or just for basic needs um, for, for families. And how are the seasonal workers treated here in Australia? Well, it's been a mixed bag. By and large, because it's been a fairly highly regulated scheme, initially as a pilot, there's been a lot of monitoring by the Department of Employment under its various guises and Fair Work Australia and other bodies. People wanted to make it work. And the Howard government resisted having a targeted seasonal worker program for Pacific Islanders. They felt that existing um, working holiday visas and others provided the labour force uh, that was needed. And they were opposed to having a well-regulated system. And so the Howard government brought in, in 2005-2006, changes to the visa scheme for working holiday makers so that they could expand that to guarantee a labour force for the horticulture sector, which was lobbying very hard for the need for for labour. And the major change that occurred in late 2005 and was expanded again a couple of times over the next few years was the idea that uh, a one-year working holiday maker visa for backpackers could be extended for a second year if you worked for three months in a rural or regional area doing harvest work. Um, Later that was expanded to cover the construction sector as well. But the idea is that someone comes for a year to Australia, young people, usually under 28, under 30, that they could work for three months fruit picking and that would grant them then a second year. So you could stay for two years rather than one year. And that guaranteed three months rural or regional work was targeted. And so the idea was that you know your average Irish or English backpacker would uh, go and work picking fruit in Murray Valley and enough to buy a combi and then go surfing for, the, for another year on top of that. And that was the concept of it. What we've seen, though, in, over the last decade has been a significant shift in the working holidaymakers in the number of countries that are applying. It's not just your average European backpacker, but it's now countries like Taiwan, Korea, Indonesia, Malaysia and other countries that are now participating in the working holidaymaker scheme. On the one hand, that's because there's a growing bourgeois you know, middle class in uh, these Southeast Asian and East Asian countries that can afford to travel. And uh, just as you know, European backpackers have come to Australia for a long time, so now we're seeing Asian backpackers essentially coming. But more than that, we're also seeing organised labour gangs coming from particularly Southeast Asian and East Asian countries to work under this scheme. And basically they're coming to work, not to holiday. Um, the original concept of the working holiday maker was that this was simply a way of supplementing your wages. But now it's becoming a structural part of the Australian economy. So you go to most 7-Elevens, you go to a lot of cafes, you go to late-night petrol stations. They're staffed by Indian students, by Irish backpackers and so on, that, that this cheap labour force paid their own airfares to get here, now seen as a significant structural part of the economy. 
um, and there's a whole debate about penalty rates related to that. And we're seeing more and more people coming not to holiday but to use the two-year visa scheme to work for two years. Does the union movement see this as a way of trying to destabilise them? Very much so. And uh, one of the problems has been that uh, some of the sectors that we're talking about have been very poorly organised by the Australian labour movement. Horticulture and and, and most of agriculture is very poorly unionised. And key unions like the AWU have uh, focused on skilled workers in the agricultural sector. For example, shearers have have been relatively well unionised over the years in spite of debates with the New Zealanders coming in and so on. Other sectors, such as fruit picking, because it involves lots of backpackers, grey nomads, casual labour, it's it's truest. It's very hard to organise and unions by and large have failed to organise key sectors of uh, particularly agriculture and horticulture. And that means that the people who are coming in don't have contact with unions, don't join up to the union uh, that's relevant for their workplace and are in fact enticed by uh, the employer, oh, don't worry about it, you know, we'll look after you and, and so on. If people know their rights, that's okay, but if they don't, if they can't organise, and because of such a fluid, transient population, it's very hard to organise, there's a, a real weakness. We've seen key unions like the CFMEU and others campaigning around uh, 457 visas, what were initially seen as highly skilled positions, top computer IT people, uh, managerial positions, uh, top sushi chefs and so on, are now expanding downwards so that 457 visas now cover a whole range of tasks in the, in the Australian standards um, that uh, previously were uh, out of bounds. And so there's been a whole battle over the exploitation of so-called skilled workers under 457. And it's only slowly that the Australian labour movement has been uh, willing to, to start looking at the issue of so-called unskilled workers uh, working in these casualised, ununionised areas. Is there anyone looking after the, the rights for, you were talking about Indian students, the ones that wash these cars at about 100 miles an hour in, in old service stations and, as you say, working in cafes, working in restaurants? Are they being helped or are they being exploited? Some unions are starting to look at this area, but... Um, Cafe, people uh, working in cafes. By and large, it's not, not highly unionised, some of these, these sectors. There's also been a tradition in the Australian labour movement to look after your own. Um, and there's a battle between internationalists and nationalists as to, to where you put your priority, where you put your organising. There are some unions, or certainly some unionists, thinking about international solidarity with workers who are coming from overseas. There are people who, who see this as an important area for collaboration with our counterparts in the labour movements in uh, neighbouring countries. But at the same time, there's also always been a strand in the Australian labour movement about, well, all these foreigners you know, coming to take our jobs. And that battle is played out often within uh, trade unions um, where a, a strong sense of internationalism also needs to be uh, supported by creative ways to organise these areas. And what we're seeing at the moment is significant debates growing around this temporary labour migration. People may have seen a program or heard about a program on Four Corners on the ABC uh, which documented the exploitation, both industrial and sexual, of uh, Taiwanese students and other students from Asia who'd come under the Working Holiday Maker program. These people were often hired by uh, labour hire firms or labour brokers, so the direct employer the grower of the horticulture industry, hires a labour hire company to provide a a casual workforce and to a certain extent turns a blind eye, believing that the labour hire company will do the right thing. They don't inquire too closely as to whether people are working in breach of their visa 
Um, so a student working more hours than they should, they don't know whether the labour hire company is creaming off a proportion of the wages, and they don't know whether people who need to get their visas signed off that they'd been working for three months in a rural area, they need employer pay slips and documentation to show that they've done this work, whether there are rorts that people are being offered this sort of paperwork to get your visa extended for a second year. Four Corners program documented cases where people were uh, sexually harassed and indeed offered an extension of their visa through paperwork if they, uh, you know, bonked the boss, bonked the labour hire company. And those sorts of problems are are pretty endemic across horticulture, which is very poorly unionised, frankly not regulated. And we're in an era where uh, the Abbott government has been talking about greater flexibility in the workplace. They've been talking about cutting back red tape, talking about small and medium enterprises, the, the driver of the economy. And so this is not a government that believes in regulation. You know, you've got Josh Frydenberg and others who are involved in cutting red tape, cutting environmental standards, cutting business regulations, cutting you know the protections that workers in small and medium enterprises have around workplace rights, around uh, uh, wages and conditions and so on. So this is not a government that believes in regulating the workforce. And that's why Australia's uh, seasonal worker program is so small. Currently, there's a cap on the number of positions, a cap of 12,000 over three years. So that's about 4,000 people a year come under the, news, under the Pacific Seasonal Worker Program. New Zealand's cap is 9,000 a year. It's a much smaller economy, yet they've more than doubled the number of Pacific workers. And there's a queue of people from the Pacific eager to come and work in a well-regulated scheme. 4,000 people a year coming to work uh, in the seasonal worker program from the Pacific, the poorest of our neighbours seeking these opportunities uh, to send home remittances. But there's 159,000 backpackers last year, and many of those uh, are increasingly coming to work. It's very interesting looking at the statistics. The top five countries who apply for their first year of a working holiday maker, subsection 417, are European countries, England, Ireland, France, Germany and so on. But when you look at the top countries for the second year, it's Taiwan, England, Korea and so on. So you see that workers who are coming under the Working Holiday Makers Scheme from Southeast Asia and East Asia are increasingly here to work rather than holiday. And so applications for positions, um, and we're talking 20,000, 30,000 people a year from these countries, are getting the second year extension because they're working in rural areas. And in figures I found from the Department of uh, Employment, 91% of people last year, 2014, were employed in agriculture or horticulture, uh, 6% in construction and only 2 or 3% in other sectors. So by and large, it's people coming and working in the orchards, in the vineyards, in uh, the packing sheds for our fruit export industry. For this final interview for Tuesday Home Time Today, I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. What about the men working on ships that ply the coasts of Australia from you know, countries in, in Asia, very poorly paid, often killed on the job, badly injured? Where does that fit in? This is very much part of the debate about the skilled worker visas. Um, the Seafarers and Maritime Union, Maritime Union of Australia, have, have long been campaigning around... Uh, proper regulation. It's a highly unionised sector, shipping in Australia, compared to other industries like horticulture. There's been a a major push. For years, people have looked at flag of convenience shipping, where you find uh, countries as diverse as Marshall Islands, uh, Panama and others, Tonga, have um, provided their flag 
for international shipping fleets that have very poor labour regulation. As we see with the CFMEU in construction area, uh, so the Maritime Union of Australia has been actively campaigning. And there's been some fairly critical cases about the uh, the crewing of barges off the coast of Western Australia with the development of offshore gas fields. Employers have been trying to say that uh, the crews that staff barges involved in uh, deep-sea oil or deep-sea gas uh, don't have to be Australian crews, that they can be crews from the Philippines or, or other countries. Now, once again... Uh, a worker is a worker is a worker, regardless of where they come from. And the tradition of international solidarity is very important And to try and have international trade union collaboration uh, to protect rights in the face of transnational capital is a really important part of, of labour solidarity. But this question about the growing labour mobility is a real challenge for long-established unions uh, who see industry flight, who see uh, a greatly mobile workforce. And, of course, it's not only to Australia. Those, that mobile workforce is going to many countries around the world. Absolutely. And uh, this is not just an Australian phenomenon. You know, America has relied on uh, uh, labour from uh, Mexico and uh, Central America and parts of South America for, for decades. You know, there's 11 million undocumented workers in, uh, in America. And what we're seeing, as I say, is the development of this is part, a structural component of the workforce uh, whether it's through formal guest worker schemes that have dated back, you know, to the 1950s and 60s in some countries, or whether it's uh, just people coming and breach- working in breach of their tourist visas. I know from some of my Pacific Island colleagues that they uh, have family members or friends come in on uh, uh, tourist visas over the summer. So you get a school teacher who'll come to Australia on a three-month tourist visa and then go working, can earn as much uh, fruit picking or doing casual work in Australia as you can earn as a primary school teacher in, in some Pacific countries and so you'll have people coming. As I say, many employers turn a blind eye to uh, um, you know the fact that people are working in breach of their tourist visa or they actively solicit the use of labour hire companies and labour brokers who are quite consciously organising people as undocumented workers. The fact that a worker is undocumented, however, shouldn't mean that they are vulnerable to exploitation. So, you know, there's a real need for the Australian labour movement to be supporting people, even though they may be in breach of their visa conditions, to try and clean up the industry with a lot of cash-in-hand payments, tax-dodging, employers seeking profits from the exploitation of people who don't know or can't mobilise their rights in the workplace. And this brings us to the talks that are going on and been going on for quite a while about the Pacific trade. There's been a, a negotiations for a free trade agreement with the Pacific Islands known as PESA Plus. Um, in 2001, Australia and Forum Island countries signed the Pacific Agreement on Closer Economic Relations, PESA. We've had since 1983 the CER, Closer Economic Relations with New Zealand, which has allowed New Zealanders to move backwards and forwards across the Tasman, and indeed Australians to move to New Zealand. A lot of skilled professional Australians are uh, are moving to New Zealand for the lifestyle. Um, So there's movement backwards and forwards under CER. Um, The idea of PACER was to expand this New Zealand-Australia trade agreement to the broader forum island countries, Papua New Guinea, Solomons, Fiji and others. However, PACER Plus, which began formally negotiating in 2009 under the Rudd government, has stalled because of Australian intransigence over the question of labour mobility. It's pretty complex and technical, but uh, the summary is Australia is happy to take skilled workers from the Pacific, teachers, nurses, accountants, doctors, 
uh, IT workers, rugby players. We're happy to have people who've got skills that fit into niches where there are shortages in Australia. And so there's a lot of problems for public sector uh, organisations in the Pacific, particularly in health and education, where they can lose skilled workers to Australia and New Zealand easily, and it's easy to migrate to Australia. But for unskilled labour, so-called, people who work in horticulture, in construction, in other sectors of the economy, there's uh, much more regulation, much more barriers. And one of the key demands for Pacific negotiators in these free trade agreements is to uh, have Australia open up its labour market and New Zealand uh, to a wider range of sectors and to a wider range of numbers uh, so that people can come and earn remittances in Australia and send them back to family. Almost a quid pro quo, you know, Australia is saying to the Pacific, if you open up your um, economy for trade in services, for Australian capital to move more freely, for the ANZ Bank and Westpac and others to uh, um, reinforce their commanding heights in the Pacific economies, um, we'll consider whether or not we'll open up labour mobility. So what we're seeing is a, a debate that's really happening behind the scenes. It's not really part of the public discussion at a time when there's so many temporary workers in Australia. The, this relationship with the Pacific is, is uh, very important. And there are some interesting signs. During the uh, budget process, Joe Hockey announced that they were going to change the tax regime for working holidaymakers. Currently, um, there's a tax-free threshold uh, that was created by the Howard government for backpackers, so you can earn up to $20,000 without being taxed, and then your tax continues to, uh, I think it's $80,000, at $0.19 cents in the dollar. There's an incredible tax-free threshold for most people, and then uh, low taxation rate at $0.19 cents in the dollar. The government is proposing to change that and remove that threshold and also increase the tax rate to $0.32 cents in the dollar. If that was the case then there's um, you know, a real disincentive for people to go and do the hard work. You know, if ever you've been, I don't know how many of you have been fruit picking, it's hard work sometimes. You go and bend over all day and it ruins your back. And if you've got a chance of working in a cafe or working in picking asparagus, um, working in a cafe has got a lot more attractions. And so this is going to really change the dynamic of the number of people in the working holiday maker sector. And it's an interesting sign as to whether the government's thinking about opening up to greater labour forces from Asia and from uh, the Pacific. You'd have to have great faith that this government might bring in a highly regulated labour force. And I think the grave danger is that without proper monitoring by Fair Work Australia, by the police, about breaches of this, the higher tax rate will probably just encourage greater cash in hand, uh, greater rorting of the system, uh, greater um, you know avoidance of tax rather than increase of tax. But it's a significant shift in the working holidaymaker scheme and the Labor Party has announced that it would support that change in taxation, which, if it passes through Parliament, would come into force on the 1st of July in 2016. So there's an interesting straw in the wind that uh, the Four Corners program, the changes announced in the budget, means that there is some movement. Uh, and currently the Senate has an inquiry into temporary labour schemes, and uh, the submissions to that inquiry have really documented a whole range of breaches of labour rights, of working conditions for temporary workers, um, whether the Senate recommendations can put any teeth into this situation. I, as I say, I'm, I'm one who doesn't think that the, uh, the government is going to make significant steps to strengthen the workplace monitoring of wages and conditions. I think, in fact, their hostility to the unions and to the labour movement means they'll go in the other direction um, and let the market rip.
that creates more and more scandals. This government doesn't seem to mind uh, that when you look at what they're doing to asylum seekers, but in the long run, it's going to cause a lot of problems. Just finally, Nick, and concentrating on the, the people coming from the Pacific to New Zealand and Australia, does that cause any family or community tension? There's a lot of social impacts um, from separation. Under these seasonal worker programs in Australia, you can come from 14 weeks to six months. So, you know, between three and six months, people come to Australia. Often it's men, although there are some women, particularly working in the packing sheds. So you're often losing a father or an elder brother, um, an uncle, um, and they all play roles in the community. People are recruited from rural villages as well as urban centres. So you're losing a rural labour force, men whose jobs are, are often central to the village economy. The great advantage, obviously, is cash, and Pacific Islanders are eager to, to earn cash. Um, even people living in rural settings who grow their own food and so on still need cash for fuel, petrol for the outboard motor, to go fishing, uh, uh, to pay school fees, uh, to improve housing, You know, put corrugated iron on, buy a water tank, uh, deal with the effects of climate change. Um, the remittance flows are really significant. There was a group of Nivanuatu workers, for example, 15 men, uh, who I spoke to people down in, in Bensdale. They were here picking fruit on a place called uh, Riverview Farms uh, when the cyclone hit. Cyclone Pam devastated the economy. And these 15 blokes thought, oh, their first impact was we have to go home. But they all discussed it and they all decided that they stay because the opportunity to earn 20 bucks an hour, take that home to help the community or send that home to help the community rebuild, the opportunity to stay in Australia and earn that sort of money was too great, even though personally many of them wanted to dash home. One bloke, his, his son was born the day of the cyclone and he was obviously torn between the desire to get back to family and uh, be with family and the fact that he could earn huge money relative to what an agricultural worker will earn in, in the Pacific. And this fundamental wage disparity makes the Australian and New Zealand labour markets attractive for people who are often growing their own food and living in a village economy. Just that money takes over. Yeah, and this is one of the tensions. Um, you know, the government of Vanuatu, for example, is under Lands Minister Ralph Rangamanu has major programs to strengthen the traditional economy, build strength and resilience in communities. Um, I was in Vanuatu last year, and there's a whole range of programs around community resilience. But increasingly, you know, even the most marginal Pacific Island countries are being integrated into global uh, capitalism. You know, people often have this paradise image of Pacific Islanders lying under the palm trees, but there's always been labour mobility within the Pacific. Going back to colonial days, people either voluntarily or forcibly were uprooted to work in the plantation economy. You know, the Kanakas, uh, today known as South Sea Islanders, Australian South Sea Islanders, were people who were either, you know, kidnapped or indentured to come and work in the Queensland sugar fields. People have worked on shipping lines in more contemporary times. Small nations like Tuvalu and Kiribati, who have no manufacturing industry to speak of, very limited public sector employment, they train their young people to be seafarers. And so you have Tuvaluans, you know, being captured by Somali pirates off the coast of Africa because they're sailing on the Hamburg shipping line. You have Kiribati seafarers so working right throughout Europe on, on, on uh, shipping, although employment has been hit by the, uh, the global financial crisis. Um, we've talked in the past of, of other areas, you know, Pacific Islanders working in aged care, in nursing, 
um, around the world. Former soldiers being recruited by private military contractors in Iraq. Thousands of people during the inv- after the invasion of Iraq were hired by British and American mercenary companies as private military contractors. People who'd been on UN peacekeeping forces had skills they could sell. So Pacific Islanders are, are very labour mobile within their own countries, moving from rural areas to the capital cities or major mining and resource projects across the island's region. So you've got many uh, countries uh, in the Melanesia group, under the Melanesian Spearhead Group, now formalising trade agreements uh, with labour mobility so uh, Fijian teachers can work in Solomon Islands and vice versa. Um, But also uh, people look to the Pacific Rim in the northern Pacific to Hawaii and Guam in the southwest Pacific to Australia and New Zealand, where the wage opportunities are just so great that people are work, willing to work with uh, very difficult conditions, family separation, indeed sometimes family trauma, in order to earn the money that can advance them in life. And that's researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. And thanks once again to Nick with his wide knowledge of everything pertaining to the Pacific and much, much more. That's all I have for today, but... Don't forget, next week is not quite a normal program. There will be a little bit of interview, probably back in the history somewhere. But we're depending on you to ring next week and donate for the Radiothon. Go out with them, Kafirs, and Jonathan will be with you in about 43 seconds. Bye for now.